Well, good morning. Seems like uh, seems like it's been forever since we were here. But, uh, at any rate, if you if you recall, we're in the book of First Peter, and we are at verses one through seven of chapter three. Uh, the section is on uh, the entire section that we have been dealing with for a, for a little while now. Uh, is dealing with the subject of, of subjection uh, of, to authority. Uh, that's that's the outline of it. Um, so far, so far we have looked at at uh, uh, our responsibility toward government that we are to be subject to the governing powers as believers. Um, we secondly looked at uh, the relationship. Uh, primarily between slave and master in that day, but we kind of applied it to uh, the work relationship of management labor today, which of course would be greatly modified from the days of of Rome. But nevertheless, the principles are the same. That you know you're to you're to do the best job you can do as, as unto the Lord for the person who employs you, and you're to be subject to their authority. They have authority over you as employer. Uh, the government has authority over you as a governing body. And and this morning, he's going to he moves now to the family, and he is going to speak to the wife first, and then to the husband, and and here he is once again delineating a line of authority. I thought before we get into the text, and it's kind of an introduction, it might be important to kind of understand a little bit of the history related to marriage relationships in first century Roman culture. Because it's not far different from where we find ourselves today, but yet it is somewhat different. Uh, In first century Rome, Rome had started to loosen up, if you will. Uh, A marriage originally under Roman culture was woman was property. Women were property. Period. Uh, they were under the authority of their father as long as they weren't married. They were under the authority of their husband once they were married. They had no rights, no say so, uh, uh, nothing of that kind. They couldn't own property. They couldn't. They really couldn't do anything. Uh, they were basically the property of their husband. In fact, he even had the right of life and death over them. But by first century, especially as we move toward the end of the first century, the middle and the end of the first century, things had loosened up a lot in Rome. And we had reached a point where, where women had the right to hold property. Uh, they, they had businesses. In fact, many of them competed with their husbands. Uh, they had a, 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 a feminist movement, if you will, going on during that time, in which uh, women, uh, not unlike what we've got going on today, only in the reverse, uh, women wanted to compete in men's sports. And, you know, now it's the other way around. Men want to compete. Men that can't compete in men's sports want to compete in women's sports. You know, that's basically basically what we have going on today. And and uh, uh, and uh, they they in many ways competed with their husband. As we moved into this time, a woman who and actually under Roman law, although this kind of got obliterated as it as it moved along, a woman that's had three children was considered free. She could do whatever she wanted. Divorce was rampant in in the Roman culture. Uh, you could people divorced left and right. In fact, a one uh, one commentator said it was not uncommon for people to have been through twenty marriages, which I can't even fathom that idea. But nevertheless, uh, that's kind of the way it is. Now, marriage under Roman culture was 
I thought initially, but that's because, you know, I've been married for 54 years, and it's a traditional marriage, and it always has been, and probably most of you are too, and I always thought, this is really strange, and I got to thinking about it, no, this kind of sounds like America today. Uh, But nevertheless, marriage in Roman times basically consisted of four different categories, if you will. Uh, There are probably modifications within this, but there were four specific categories. The first was basically the slave marriage, uh, which wasn't a marriage at all. It basically was the owner of the slave gave permission for two of his slaves to cohabit. That's really what it amounted to. In fact, the name of this marriage in English was tent mates. That was the name of it. Uh, he could break them up. He could sell one of them. He could decide they needed to be with a different partner. But nevertheless, they were they were considered in a sense, married, if you will, uh, during during that time. Uh, actually, they're called tent companions. But anyway, that was that was the way it was. The second one would be what we would consider common law marriage, and this was probably common among the less affluent free people. Uh, they basically just moved in together, and once they had lived together for a year, they were considered married. That, that, was, that was the second form of, of marriage under Roman law. The third type was probably more in the upper, what would be ever the upper middle class kind of people, uh, merchant class people and that kind of thing, people who had some money. This is the case where someone would go to, one father would go to another father and he would purchase a daughter as a wife for his son. Uh, that's, that was a very common practice in Rome. That was a, the third sort of marriage that they had. And the fourth sort of marriage was the most elevated. It was the one amongst the nobility. It was the one that, uh, uh, although divorce was still rampant here as well, but nevertheless, in other words, it was the most, what we consider, would consider a traditional wedding. In fact, we would consider it so much a traditional wedding that the Roman Catholic Church and eventually the Protestant Church adapted the principles that were in this marriage to the marriage ceremony most of you probably went through. Uh, in this marriage ceremony, in this marriage ceremony, uh, the wife was accompanied by usually a matron in, in Roman times, but, you know, a maid of honor. Uh, the husband, the, the, the groom had a best man. There was an officiator. Uh, the wife, the wife wore a veil. There was bouquets. There were, there was a, a, a guest invited and, uh, vows were exchanged. So it was very much like the marriage that we have today. So into this setting is is actually, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that extensive chapter on, on marriage, you'll see that's the, these, are the, these are the issues that are being addressed that the Corinthians are asking. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? It's on and on and on. They ask these questions. <clears throat> uh, but, but this is the setting that we come into as we come into this text this morning. Now, this is kind of the backdrop for it. Now, understand something. Given the way the society was, and this, this will play, we'll, we'll pick this up in just a minute. Given the way that the society was, there wasn't a lot for the wealthier wives to do. You know, uh, as the first century unfolded, they were able to participate more, but initially they weren't. And, and what happened is their total focus 
was on making themselves look good, which is going to be you know, plating the hair, fancy hairdos. In fact, they, they, were, they were real big into dyeing their hair different colors. You know, these ladies with purple hair today would fit in real well. You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, nevertheless, th- those kind of things went on. So uh, this is the setting that this, this text is written into. It's a setting where marriage is somewhat strange uh, to, to, uh, to normal terms, I guess you would say. It's a, it's a setting where, where women didn't have as much freedom as they were evolving into by the end of this century, uh, the first century. Uh, but the only focus that if you, if you had money, the only focus you had was buying fancy stuff and decorating yourself. So it's into that situation that Peter is going to is going to is going to address his uh, make his address as he addresses submission within the family. So and and oh by the way you know and if your husband has the power of life and death over you submission is really not a question it's servitude mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a lot different so as we come to this we're going to we'll we'll uh, we'll start unfolding that before we do uh, before we get involved in in this this morning uh, do we is there any prayer request that you'd like to bring up no oh. Sorry. Um, I, my daughter who lives in Boston has the possibility of a new position. Um, we would just pray that God's will would be done in this position. Okay. Bob, can I ask you to open us this morning? <clears throat> Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the, a new day to come back this year and, and enjoy your word. Pray that we can dig deep into it and learn. History and the uh, the intentions you have for husband wife relationships. And pray that you be with John as he teaches us today. Help us to be attentive and to listen well. And uh, as you would uh, take any prayer requests, Lord, that, that they mentioned, pray that you would answer them according to your will. And uh, we would be in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look first of all at verses one and two, the wife's directive, the directives to the wife. And he says, so Peter writes, in the same way, you wives be subject to your own husband so that so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. So he begins. This is where he begins in these verses. And incidentally, uh, there's there there's a number of commentators. It's it's kind of funny, you know, the guys that write commentary. Some of the stuff they decide to write because it really makes no sense. But anyway, there's a lot of there's there's a number of commentators that look at this verse, look at these verses, and they go, "Oh, you got six verses to the wife and one to the husband." That means there were a lot more Christian women in that day than there were Christian men. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. In fact, if you go to Ephesians chapter. Five, you will find that there are three and a half verses to the to the wife, and about I think it's seven and a half verses to the husband. So it just flip flops. It just it's just the writer and what his intent is. So that that has nothing to do with anything at this point. Uh, and, and incidentally, those are the the two uh, the two other other chapters that you want to look at when you're looking at marriage: chapter seven of First Corinthians and and Ephesians five twenty two through twenty three. Uh, all of those are directed at, at at the relationship between husband and wife in a Christian marriage. <clears throat> so at any rate, incidentally, 
in that day, generally, whole households were saved, and the, the focus was generally toward the males, and wives followed their husbands is really what happened in, in those days. So that, that's not, not really the idea. But here we have a different situation. The situation he is actually addressing here, he's, the, the, there's a general principle of submission, but there is a specific that that submission can be used for, and it's evangelistic, uh, to redeem or to bring to salvation an unsaved husband. That's, that's the situation here. Incidentally, that would be a very dangerous position for a wife to be in, for to have an unsaved husband in that day. That would be a very dangerous position. So he is giving directions, first of all, overall to women in general, but specifically to wives who have unbelieving husbands. So, he, he says, in the same way, and this is, of course, uh, some texts have this as, as likewise. Uh, likewise is, is a word that, uh, or in the same way, it can be translated either way. In fact, it is translated in various, comment, in various sections either way. It's, it's a word that is used, the context dictates it. It's one of those kind of words. It's used, <coughs> excuse me, it's used in 1 Corinthians 7.22. It's used in James uh, 22.25. 20, uh, it's used in, in Luke 10.32 and 37 and 6, 6.25. And in that place, it conta- it, it's a contrast between good and evil. So it, it, it doesn't mean to do it exactly the same. That's the point I want to make here. This, this in the same manner doesn't mean exactly the same. In other words, it's not referring back it does refer back to the other other incidents of submission. Just as you are to submit to the authority of government, wives are to submit to the authority of their husband. Just as slaves are to submit to the authority of their master, wives are to submit to their husband. It doesn't mean wives are slaves. That's what it doesn't mean. That's what it does not mean. It, 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 uh, uh, it just refers back to the order... Of submission, that's what it's. That's what its reference is to. It's 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 saying that wives are to be subject, and it's the same word as in in two thirteen and two eighteen. Uh, in other words, they are to and and of this word to being subject is to line up under authority. In other words, God has placed authority in the home, and those members of the home are to line up under that authority under the authority of God. That's that's the point here. That's the point. It, it doesn't infer anything else other than that, because there is no authority except for the authority that comes from God. That's that's the point. That's the point he's trying to make. And and basically here again, um, <coughs> it's it's an idea that you're to have a healthy apprehension of creating displeasure is is the idea behind all of this that we we talked about that a month ago i think but at any rate at any rate uh um, it's been a little while in the family the father holds the authority incidentally he's also the one that's held accountable look at the look at the look at the penalties that were imposed on adam and eve eve's the one that was deceived he's the one that handed adam the apple but adam built bit willfully and when he did, he threw the he threw the entire race into sin. The accountability fell on him. That's where it fell. So understand something. In the home, what, what Peter is saying here is, God has put the accountability, the responsibility on the husband. Wives don't try to usurp it. 
Be subject to that authority. That's, 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 that's pretty much what he's saying here. And submission is a word that runs, or being subject to, is a word that runs throughout all of God's created order. The universe is subject to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.27. The church is subject to Christ, Ephesians 5.29. Church members are subject to to their leaders, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through, 30, uh, 15 through 16. Christ, in his incarnation, is subject to God the Father, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And incidentally, it's never reversed. Those, those senses are never reversed. Therefore, what he is saying here in this text, in this text of the greater context of 1 Peter is, you believers are to be subject to government. You're to be subject in your employment to your employer. And in the home, there is subjection. Husbands hold the accountability. Husbands hold the responsibility. They hold the authority. God has placed the authority on them. Therefore, wives, line yourself up in order under them. Oh, by the way, the next step is children. You're in subjection to both of them. And you line yourselves up under them. That's, that's the order that he's giving here. And he's doing it because... Because that's the way God created it. That's, that's the bottom line. There's no, uh, no, no one's better or lesser. It doesn't, imply, it doesn't imply inferiority. You can look at verse 7 to see that that's clear, because it says that, that both are saved people, and they are equal at the cross. That's the bottom line. So, so that's, that's the idea here. The idea is that you line up in order under the authority that God has sta- established. That's, that's, the, that's, that's, that's what he's saying here. And then he says, to be subject to your own husband. And that's important because there are those who have the idea that all women are to take orders from all men. No, absolutely not. Men, women are not in subjection to men overall. That's not not what the text is saying. This is specific to the home. It points here to the intimacy that marriage holds. It's two people together. That's that's the idea. They're not subject to anyone else. Well, other than the authorities God has placed. But <clears throat> and then he goes on to say that <clears throat> this subjection, if done correctly can bring those who are disobedient to the word. Meaning that if a woman has an unsaved husband and she is saved, her behavior within the home, her God or taking her God-ordained position within the home has, can have the effect of bringing that unbelieving husband uh, uh, that un- unbelieving husband to faith. That's the idea. Disobedience to the word means, it literally means unsaved. I mean, you could just write, take all that verbiage out and just put unsaved. You know, that's, that's what it means. And he says you can win them without a word. Now, the idea here is, is not so much that they can be won without hearing the gospel. That's not what that means. It means that she doesn't need to use a lot of verbiage. In other words, it means you don't nag him into the kingdom. Uh, I, I'm sure some of you, some of you probably aren't, you're probably too young, but uh, I'm sure a number of you remember Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Yeah, you know, a lot of us who have been around a while listen to him religiously. Yeah. Huh? The Bible bus. The Bible bus, yeah. And uh, uh, incidentally, he's the, uh, the uh, uh, 
The Bible Institute of Los Angeles, better known as Biola, was founded in his church uh, uh, initially. Uh, but, any, but at any rate, uh, 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 I attended there for a while, and he graduated from there. So anyway, but it, well, Talbot anyway. But uh, uh, before I went to Masters, I went to Talbot for a while. But uh, uh, at any rate... Uh, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, Dr. McGee tells this story about a lady in his church who came to him, and she was just in tears over her husband who was unsaved. And he says, well, what do you do? And she says, every morning when I bring him his breakfast, I sit across from him at the table, and I just weep and beg him to be saved. And he looked at her, and he says, stop it! (laughs) And she says, you get up in the morning and clean your face, and bring him his breakfast, sit down and eat with him, and talk nice. (laughs) The guy eventually was saved. But who who would want a Christianity that causes that kind of nonsense? That's the point. That's what he's saying here. He's going to be one without a word. You're not going to nag him into the kingdom. You're not going to beat him into the kingdom. That's not going to happen. He says he can be one without a word. Doesn't mean he's not going to hear the gospel. It doesn't mean you can't share the gospel with him. What it does mean is you don't just beat him over the head with a big black Bible. That's that's what it means. That's that's what he's telling him. And he says he says he can be one. You can win the disobedience without a word. He may be won by the conduct of the wife. In other words. How you purport yourself before him. How you handle yourself. How you conduct yourself. This is true in all Christianity, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're male or female. If you want to have a, wor- if you want to have a witness amongst people, how are you going to conduct yourself? Are you going to conduct yourself like the heathens? Or are they going to see in you something different? Are they going to see in you Christ? Is Christ going to be, going to be are you going to be a mirror for Christ to them? And that's what this is saying. Your conduct should mirror the God you serve. That's, that's what he's telling them in this, in this text. <clears throat> in other words, in the marriage, the husband should be able to see, this unbelieving husband should be able to see that this faith is alive and working within his wife. That it's true in her. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 2, he, he, he expands this just a little bit more. He says, as they observe, in other words, they're watching you. You know, when you live together in a household, you kind of observe each other. You see what you're doing. Uh, you know, that's that's just the way it is. You see, you see the, the flaws, you see the positives, you see everything. You know, you see what's going on in the life of that person. He says, he says that they may be, observe your pure conduct with fear. That's what he says here. The NSB says, puts it this way. The NASB says it this way, chaste and respect, respectful behavior. Pure or chaste is basically has the idea of being free from moral defilement. You don't, you don't just, you know, you're not, you're, you you live an upright life. You live a godly life that, that the, the, uh, the, you see the gospel working out. And it doesn't mean you're sinless, but it, it does mean that you are not living like a heathen. That's the point. You're not, you're not participating in the cultural norms of that day is kind of the idea here. Fear, of course, is phobia. 
Uh, in verse uh, later on, it's it's going to be used. The same word is going to be used in verse six for uh, intimidation. Uh, it, it's the idea of a tr- of of, uh, of attributing to or giving honor. Ephesians five two: Wives should be subject to your your own husbands as Lord. That's the idea here. Is is that uh, that you should show honor and respect toward your husband? That's 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 what this this word here is referring to. That that your conduct should be above reproach and it should be practiced with respect toward the one to whom you are to be subject uh, that's what he's saying here uh, in in the other text in in 213 he says toward government that the reason you submit to government is for the sake of the lord that's that's the idea here. Uh, if in the labor management relationships, he said it twice in verse 19, he said, for sake of consciousness toward God and two to find favor in, in verse 20 to find favor with God. In other words, that's what this is saying is God looks favorably upon this. He'll look favorably upon you for obeying. That's 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 the context that he's he, that he's doing here. He's saying you are to submit because that's the orderly matter in which God has established life in the family. And then secondly, he goes on and he talks about, now he talks about the wife's deportment. And here's where, here's where the culture of that day kind of comes into play. He says, your adornment must not be merely, and that's an added word by the translators to help you understand what, what the, the Greek text is actually saying. Your adornment is not to be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is <clears throat> which is precious in the sight of God. We're going to stop there for just a moment. We'll pick it back up in a minute. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, if if I'm watching TV, I can't. You can't get through a commercial without there being something about exercise, fashion, or beauty products. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I'm still puzzled. I don't understand this one. Maybe one of you can explain it to me sometime. But uh, there's a, there's a commercial for some kind of skin cream that's supposed to take the crepey skin off. You know, and they got all these actresses going on about how wonderful they feel because of it. If it takes the crepey skin off your arm, why do you need a different one for your neck? <laughs> they got two different ones. You know. I, I just don't understand that. But nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, uh, they're just filled with that kind of stuff, you know. Or, or you need, or you need this this pill. It'll make you make whether you're male or female. They got one for each each, you know. Make you feel younger, you know. Make you make you stronger. Make you be able to hit a golf ball farther. I don't know. But at any, any rate, uh, they have all these kind of deals. And I so I thought, you know. First century Rome was a lot like that. That's they spent a lot of money and a lot of time on this kind of stuff. So I, I did a, a little bit of research. Last year, we spent on fashion. This is just clothing and that kind of stuff. One point seven trillion dollars. One point seven trillion on fitness. This includes gyms and that kind of deal, but not the drug stuff, just the the physical stuff, gym equipment and gyms and that kind of stuff. $32 billion on cosmetics, and they said it was down because of COVID, uh, almost $50 billion. And on skin skin care products, getting rid of the crepe on your neck, uh, um, $63.8 million. I didn't go into the 
supplement side of things. I didn't. I got tired of looking at that point. Now, in comparison, just to give you a comparison, so that you kind of get an idea of what Rome did in those days, Caligula. Caligula if I can say it. Anyway, that guy, uh, his wife, he uh, had a dr- she had a dress made. It was completely covered in pearls. Pearls was the big thing in Rome. It's completely covered in pearls. It is estimated that in Roman days, that dress would have cost $450,000. You know what that is in today's money? $1.125 trillion. They spent a lot. They spent a lot of money on fashion. So he's saying here. He says. He says into this, into this society, into a society that was that extravagant, shall we say? He says to them. He says to the women of that day, your 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 adornment must not be purely external. That's the first thing he says. What he's not saying here. And what some people have taught and some heretical groups have, have taught, it doesn't mean that you can't style your hair. It doesn't mean you can't wear fashionable clothes. It doesn't mean you can't wear jewelry. It doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean any of those. That's why the commentators add merely. That's not to be your focal point. That's what they're saying here. It's perfectly fine for ladies, men too, to try to look their best, uh, to 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 dress up, uh, to comb. I mean, you don't you don't want to go out with your hair just sticking out. I mean, some people do, but anyway, with your hair just sticking all over your head, you know, uh, you want you want to you want to look you want to look reasonable and nice. In fact, if you note Song of Solomon in verses in chapter one, verse ten, and four, verse uh, eleven, and seven one, all talks about the adornment Solomon put on his wife. Um, that's not being condemned there. It's saying it's okay, you know. So this is not teaching. It's not teaching you're supposed to li- li- live an Amish lifestyle. You know, no, can't have any buttons exposed. You know, you wear plain clothes. Nothing that, nothing. You know, that that's just false. That's false. That's pride in reverse. It's just false pride. So that's not what he's saying here. The point is that wives are not to be preoccupied with superficial adornment, i.e. clothes, uh, hair, clothes, and jewelry. Um, fitness should not be the focal point uh, of our lives. Uh, being uh, being perfectly made up and with all kinds of fancy things is not the idea. That's not to be the adornment. He says, that not, not, not let the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, the putting on of garments. Incidentally, in the Roman days, most of the gold the women wore was in their hair. They put all kinds of gold stuff in their hair. Uh, and I mean, it was gold. It wasn't gold color. It was gold. You know, uh, that was that was the idea. Of course, we're talking about wealthy women here. Israel had the same problem. Israel dealt with the same the same issue. In fact, Isaiah addressed addressed this very issue with Israel in in chapter three, verses 16 through 24, where he says, moreover, 
Yahweh says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks and seductive eyes, and go about with menacing steps and tinkling and bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will smite the skulls of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and, and Yahweh will make their foreheads bare. In that day the Lord will remove the, the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, their bracelets, their veils, their headdresses, Ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, enchanted charms, finger rings, nose rings, uh, piercing is nothing new, Um, uh, uh, nose rings, festive robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, uh, turbans, and shawls, and it will be instead a sweet perfume. Now, instead of being a sweet perfume, there will be the smell of rot. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothing, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. That was God's judgment on this kind of activity in Israel. Timothy wrote in 1 Timothy 4.8, speaking of fitness, and I, there's nothing wrong with getting plenty of exercise. There's some people that make that their whole life, too. He says, in First Timothy 4.8, he says, For body training is only for a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of this present life and also the life to come. Uh, that's, that's the thrust here. That's the thrust he's saying here. Uh, he's saying, outward adornment is not to be the preoccupation of your life. Yeah, comb your hair, you know, put on something nice. Uh, Perfume is okay, but you know what? Don't make that the sum total of your life. Uh, Don't be like these ladies on the TV that go, my life would have ended if I hadn't found this cream, you know. At any rate. And then he goes on and he's, oh, got to get back to the right text. And he goes on and he says, he says in verse four, he says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart Mm -hmm. with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, he, He goes on and he says, now here's the way the Christian woman should conduct herself. It's the hidden, the true beauty of a human being. This is both male and female, I think, but specifically to the woman here, he's saying, your true beauty comes from the inner person of the heart, your true nature, nature, your personality that's revealed in your words and actions which reflect the inner attitudes. It's the way you behave yourself, the way you purport yourself to other people, the way you you talk to people, the way you interact with people, uh, the way you socialize the way you conduct yourself that's uh, that's the idea saying here uh, Paul uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in first first Timothy chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 he says likewise I want I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing with modesty with self-restraint not the braiding of hair and the gold or the pearls of costly clothing that's all referring to the Roman culture and what Roman women did but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness and then he goes on and he says uh, he, he talks about submission there too as well but but there's the important there there's the clothing to which you're supposed to be adorned uh, we might say proper church clothes, I guess, you know, but at any rate, uh, that's the idea here. And he goes on and he says, and he says, he says of these qualities, 
he says of these qualities, he says, he says, here's here's what they they should look like uh, with the incorruptible quality. Incidentally, quality is not in the text. This is a Greek place where they put the uh, uh, put the uh, participle without a noun, uh, and you kind of have to supply the noun. So the translator supplied quality. Uh, some some put incorruptible beauty different different ideas but the that's the idea here the idea is is that your person should be should be um exude this incorruptibility uh, the word incorruptible or imperishable uh, with a quality implied actually it's an adjective without a noun it, it's used in one four to refer to our heavenly inheritance that's 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 what it, the incorruptible imperishable is is all the qualities uh, of, of a person whose home is heaven should be demonstrated in this in this lady that's that's the idea here, whose whose real home is heaven, is the idea that he's that he's expressing here. <clears throat> Christian women are not to be uh, uh, are not to be adorned with ex, with temporal external beauty, but with the adornment of godliness. That's 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 what he's saying here. That's the idea here. Uh, that's in other words, don't substitute character. First splash is kind of the idea that he's that he's expressing, and then he goes on and he says he says and these qualities of the qualities of first of all a lowly and a quietly spirit uh, and quiet spirit. Um, lowly is translated in the NASB as gentle. Uh, the word basically means humble. Uh, shows meekness, uh, godly attributes that uh, uh, that Jesus expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Attitudes that express <coughs> are expressed in in submission. Is is the idea here? That, that's the idea: to be gentle, to be humble, to be meek. Uh, those those ideas, and and then quiet is is the idea of being tranquil. That's really another way this word can be translated. To be still or to be quiet. To be at peace might be a way to put this. Uh, that one, you conduct yourself, you don't have to, you know, you're not, you're not out there with a picket sign yelling and screaming and throwing Molotov cocktails. You're, uh, you, you, you take things as they are. You take them meekly, quietly, humbly. And, and, you, and, and in such, you are demonstrating the true beauty. That's the, that's the the true character and the true beauty. And he says he goes on to say that that kind of a character. And and here's here's if if you want to rebel against Adam, you don't like it. Here's here's the bottom line. If you're a believer, it's precious in God's sight. That's that's the bottom line here. It's precious in God's sight. When God looks upon this, He's pleased. He's not pleased if it's the other way. That's that. That's implied. That's implied, which is precious in God's sight. It's an effective testimony of her value, her faith, and her true beauty. That's that's the idea here. <clears throat> then he goes on to give some examples, and he and he says, first of all, he says, for in this way, in former times. The holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands. So he says, this is nothing new. I'm not giving you any new teaching. 
the women of the Old Testament, this is the way they conducted themselves. The holy women of the Old Testament, uh, women like Ruth, uh, women like the, the, the woman, the, the, the virtuous wife of, of uh, Proverbs 31. Uh, these women, this is the way they conducted themselves. That's, that's what he's saying here. He said, and, and woman is plural. It means all the godly women of the Old Testament era, we can look to them as examples. He doesn't, here he doesn't name anyone. He's going to in the next verse. Uh, but here he is just saying, he's just saying they hoped in God. And incidentally, that word is, a, is one of those continuing words. It means they hoped over a long period of time. In other words, they kept their faith. That's, that's what that means. That's that's ultimately what that means. He's saying he's saying here uh, <clears throat> for the former times uh, in the former times the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn the used to adorn the, used to adorn themselves being subject to their own husbands. In other words, sub, being subjective being sub, being in submission to your own husband is not new. That's the way. God has always intended it. That's the way God's people have always maintained their relationships, um, and it went on. And and it went on continually. They continued in this, and it, and, and he says, and this is the way they adorned themselves. They had lowly, quiet spirits. Uh, and once again, he's not introducing anything new. He's saying here, this is the way it's always been. This is the way God intends it to be. That's that's what he that's what these examples point to. And then the submission ties back to verses one and two to have the submissive attitude, which produces the inward beauty of verses three through four, as is what he is suggesting in this in this in this this text. And then he gives a specific example. And he says in verse six, he says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. And here again he says, Sarah becomes a specific example. He points to him. There's no specific example from her life. What he is saying here is her overall life. Yeah, there were some foo paws within her life. He's not pointing to those. He uses the word doing good in the things she did right, which were a lot of things. Uh, And so he doesn't point to any specific of those. He says, but she was consistently... In subjection to her to her husband, she obeyed. That's that's what it says here. Now, understand something. You you know the story of Sarah. She had input into their life. This this text is not saying wives don't have any input. And when we get to the husband, we'll talk about that in the understanding way just a little bit. But it doesn't mean wives don't have input. It doesn't mean wives don't have a say. If I didn't listen to Kathy, I'd have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> But uh, understand that, uh, you know, but uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, is husbands are accountable. They they ha- they are held responsible for the decision. Doesn't mean the wife doesn't have a say. And and if you look at Sarah's life, you can see sometimes she had say and Abraham shouldn't have listened to her. And other times she did as she was told. She did as he directed, which sometimes was stupid. And God protected her. You know, so you see all of that in her life. It's a, it's an interesting and an interesting idea here. He says she 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 she. He says he called him, and that's another one of these continuing, uh, continuing verb. One of these continuing words. It says she continued that through her 
her married life to Abraham. She continued in that idea of, of, of showing respect toward her husband. And he says, if you do good, conduct yourselves toward your husband as Sarah did. And he says, then you become her children. And this, of course, is just a, a play off of the fact that all, all the children of faith are sons of Abraham. Well, they're children of of. Sarah as well. That's that's what he's saying here. In other words, sons and daughters of Abraham and and Sarah are the people of faith. That's that's who that's who we are. And and since he's specifically talking to wives, he just uses daughters in this case. You become her children. Uh, Romans four one through sixteen. Galatians three six, uh, seven through twenty nine. Uh, Sarah is the becomes the mother of all faithful women who follow her example. And he goes on to say that you have no need to fear any intimidation. Proverbs chapter three. Uh, chapter 25 through 27. Do not be afraid of, su- or of, uh, of sudden dread, nor of the storm of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due uh, when it is at your hand to do so. In other words, what this is saying is, don't, you have no need to fear because your trust is to be placed in Yahweh and in him alone. There's no reason to fear. Daughters of Sarah, of Sarah <clears throat> are to live confident calm lives that dispel all fear. That's, that's the idea behind this text. Now he's going to turn his attention to the men. And he only does it in one verse, but it's packed. And he's going to talk to husbands. And he's, and he's going to say now to the husband, he says, you husbands in the same way, same, same word again as verse, one, as verse 1, in the same way, <coughs> Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. He begins off by saying in the same way, and this is, this is a reference to the, <clears throat> to the duty of submission, and it basically here is husbands are to be in submission as, as the head of households are to be in submission to Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5. This is, this is the, the, the primary text. We'll get there in just a minute. But in, in Ephesians 5, he says, he says, look, here's your responsibility. You likewise are subject. Now, you're not under the submission of your wife, but you're under the submission of God, who puts you as head of the household, who told her to be in submission to you. You see the you see the follow you follow the line and then the children are to be in submission under the both of you. That's how households are to run, and and husbands are never to forget they got someone to answer to. And you know what? He can be more terrifying than a husband can be. So he says he says he says uh, uh, the idea here is that that why that husbands are not to be arbitrary bullies or. I had a word that I was going to use, and I've lost it. Uh, uh, dictators over their wives. That's, that's not the idea. He's, because he goes on to say, uh, they're to be considerate in every manner toward their wife. And that's, that's summed up in the next verse. He says, he, sa- he says to them, live with your wife in an understanding way. 
Now, there's a tons of jokes about men have no comprehension of understanding women, but the idea here is you're to know your wife. That's the idea here. You're to know her. You're to live. Basically, literally, this text says living together according to knowledge. That's literally how the Greek words that phrase. And, and, and he basically says, he's basically saying here, you need to understand who your wife is. You need to know her personality. You need to know her strengths, her weaknesses, her faults, her abilities. And you need to, you need to nurture those or, or help her overcome them, if that's, that's the case. You're to live th- with her according to knowledge. Ephesians 5 says to the, says to the husband in, in, chapter, in, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife. Now, it's not bad enough that, that Paul wrote, Husbands, agape your wife. In other words, place ultimate value on her above you because he then defines it for you by saying by saying just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her in other words it says be ready to die for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present himself uh, might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot nor wrinkle or such thing that she would be holy and blameless so husbands ought to love their wives as they would their own body he who loves his wife loves himself in other words what he is saying here is Husbands, you have an awesome responsibility. This woman who submits to you as the authority in the household, (coughs) you are to be willing to take whatever cost it is to make sure she is at her best. That's, That's what he's saying. And that's what this text says here. You're to live with your wife in an understanding way according to knowledge. You're to know her hopes, her desires, her strengths, her weaknesses. And then he makes this other statement, and this statement gets greatly misunderstood. He says, as a weaker vessel since she is a woman. He's pointing out here, he's pointing out the fact, and and incidentally, the the word woman here, literally, the Greek word literally says the feminine one. That's, that's what the Greek word says. It points to femaleness. It's, it's pointing out the God-created femaleness that she possesses. That's, that's what, he's, that's what he's, he's, he's pointing out here. Um, and that's to be respected by the husband. The text does not imply any inferiority as to personhood. Uh, she's no less in character or intelligence, or, or is she spiritually in, in, uh, inferior to men? It's not saying that. It's pointing out something that's just simple fact. Most women, most, I know this isn't true in every case, but most women are not as strong as the men in their life. Uh, they're, they're, they don't possess the physical strength that their husband does. So what it's talking about is you're not to be overpowering her by your physical strength. That's that's part of part of what this this text applies to. Incidentally, keep in mind Galatians three twenty eight, which says all are equal at the cross. There is no Greeks. There is no Jew. There is no free. There is no slave. There is no male. There is no female. All are the same at the cross. 
women are the same at the cross as men are. That's that's the idea. It basically has the idea that men are not to take advantage of them because of their physical strength. It also means they're not there to. It also has the idea implied here that just because you have been given the authority in the household, you're not to abuse that authority. That doesn't mean you get to be a dictator. You can't be. You can't run run roughshod over everyone. That's that's the next idea. And then it also some commentators think, and there probably probably is a a certain degree here that is that is that is true. Is men and women have different emotional makeups, and they have different emotional needs, and they handle emotions differently in general. In general, that's that's true. And what this means is you're not to not to use her emotional makeup as a means of overpowering her or 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 in other words, emotional abuse is the idea here. Uh, This basically tells men there are you there is no excuse for spousal abuse. That's what it's saying here. That, that's the ultimate. Ultimately, what it's saying here, she's to be treated as the feminine one. That's what it's saying. She, that's to be recognized, to be respected, and to be held up as God-ordained and as God-created. That's, that's the idea. And then he goes, he goes on from there, and he says, he says, he says, and show her honor. As a fellow heir of the grace of life, and we'll get back to Galatians three five, he's pointing. He's making the. He's making very much the point here. Your wife is a fellow believer. She is equal at the cross with you. Don't forget that and honor her for that. That's 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 the thrust here. But keep in mind who she is all the way around, both. Physically in this world, but in the world to come as well. She's a believer in Jesus Christ. And she belongs to him, just as you do. And all of the one and others that apply to everyone else in the church apply to her in your marriage as well. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, she is saved by grace just as her husband was saved by grace. And then he gives a warning. He says... He says this, he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And incidentally, this isn't saying so that the husband and wife's praying together won't be hindered. It's saying that the husband's prayers won't be hindered because he's the one that messed up. This is what it's saying here is this is an accountability here. Uh, this is a Hebrews 12, uh, 12, 13 through 11 situation where the husband is being disciplined by his prayers not being answered because he is not treating his wife the way he should. So, gentlemen, if you're finding your prayers hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down and hitting you in the head, maybe you ought to look to how you're treating your wife. Just a suggestion. Uh, but that's what this is saying. That's what this is saying. It's saying, you know, you want God to answer prayer in your life? You want God to do these things? You want to bring these requests before him? Then do what he's told you toward your wife. Live with her by knowledge. Live together by knowledge. Treat her properly. Give her the honor and respect she is due. You want your wife to be the wife you want her to be? Then do everything you can in your power to help her be there. That's, that's the idea. Honor her and respect her. There may be only one verse to men, but it's a hard-hitting one. 
The one to women is be an evangelist and save your husband by acting properly in front of him. <laughs> That's the text. Any comments or questions this morning? on this verse as well, um, oh. ironically. And, uh, and he just mentioned there are two ways that men screw this up. One is the domineering dictator side. The other is the abdication. And both will hinder your prayer. Yeah. But if you're abdicating your role and, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. leadership, that has that same. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because that is true. You know, the, the other side is, you know, don't, don't, you know, the female-dominated household is not to be seen in Christianity either. Um, you know, that's the big, I personally think, if you look at our society today and the things that are happening in it and, and where uh, the major source of crime and trouble comes from, it comes from single-parent households that are basically there is no male role. And, and the crime statistics prove that. You know, they, they, they prove it. And you also see a lot of this. Uh, this is unfortunate to say, ladies, but I mean, I don't think any of you would be this way. But you look at a lot of this transgender and homosexual stuff. Mm-hmm. Look where the homes these come from. Mm-hmm. Mom supports them and pushes it. I don't understand that. But anyway, anyway, uh, the role that God has called for us is that, that wives are to line themselves up in order as God has fashioned it. Husbands are to remember who they answer to and how they treat their wife. And they should treat her as a fellow heir of grace. That's, that's, those are the simple lessons here. Those are the simple lessons. Live like a, live like a, women live like a believer. Men live like a believer. That's what it's, and treat each other that way. That's what it says. And I know you're going to fail now and then. All of you. I certainly have. So, at any rate, and I get I get told about it when I do. <laughs> but anyway, at any rate, let's uh, let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this uh, for this text. We thank you for this time together in your Word. And we would just ask, Lord, that our prayer would be that we would be the people represented in this text. We would be husbands and wives who who live together, the husbands who live with our wives by knowledge, wives who, who can willingly submit. It's not a drudgery uh, because we are husbands who love them, who care for them, who nurture them, and want only their best because that's what God has called husbands to. And Father, we would just thank you for that. And we would ask your blessing upon this company here and upon all the families within this church that we might be examples of what godliness looks like in the home. And we would thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.